Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. Welcome to another edition of Canadians and Old Time Radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, President and Founder of COTRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance, and you might want to check out our website. I think you'll find some interesting tidbits up there, www.cotra.ca. In the meantime, here is an episode of CBC Stage, from 1969. And now, CBC Sage presents The Greatest Things in Sliced Bread, adapted by Gertha Golland from the novel by Don Robertson. The explosion was just something that happened to happen. It really never should have happened. Those gas tanks were the safest in the world. Everybody said so. They were built in 1941 by the East Ohio Gas Company, supplier of natural heating gas to all of the great city of Cleveland and northeastern Ohio. There were four tanks, and they were designed for the storage of natural gas in its liquid state. Their capacity was 400,000 feet of liquefied gas, which was the equivalent of 240 million feet of gas in its natural state. The legless man was wise enough to understand that heroes can be found in the damnedest places, which was why he didn't hesitate when he called the boy the greatest thing since sliced bread. For the boy, though, the big thing wasn't his bravery. For him, the big thing happened before the explosion. That's what Morris Bird III said when all that fuss was made about him. He was no hero, he said. The big thing happened the moment he saw his old buddy, Stanley Chalupka. The exact moment. Why? Well, it meant that the boy had accomplished what he had set out to do, which helped him to come to terms with the things he felt badly about. Stupidities, for instance, and betrayals. In the year 1944, the month of October, I was nine years old. Veronica Lake was my big love. But then so was Suzanne Wasaki who had long blonde hair that fell over her left eye. Suzanne was eight, and I saw her whenever I couldn't be with my best friend, Stanley Chalupka. Goofy old Chalupka, with the boogers in his eyes and his big floppy boobies. When all was said and done, what could you do about Chalupka? But the day came when Stanley and his mother moved out of the neighborhood to Chalupka's grandmother's. Morris Bird III really missed him. Well, he did miss playing with Chalupka's trains, too. Their goodbyes were brief. Might have said very much. But Chalupka did say something about East 63rd Street not being the end of the world. Hello? Chalupka? 
That you? Yes. This is Bird. Morris Bird. Oh. Uh, how, how are you? Fine. Good. I, uh, Chalupka? Yes? Uh, the reason I called... You still there? Yes. You're not glad I called? Yes. You are then? Sure I am. Well, it's about your address. My address? Yeah. I know it's East 63rd Street, but I don't know the number. It's 670. Just a second. I want to write it down. 670. It's near the lake, north of St. Clair Avenue. You know where that is? Yeah. I mean, I could find it on a map. I can see the lake from my window. I... I thought I'd come to see you. See me? Yeah. All right. Friday, maybe? Sure. Friday's fine. After school? Sure. The train's okay? They're fine. Chalupka? Yes? How come you got nothing to say? I ask you questions and all you say is yes. Fine. Sure. It's the first time anyone ever called me on the telephone. The first time ever? Ever. A person's voice sounds funny on the telephone. Someone I know, I mean. Oh, yeah. I guess that's so. Well, see you Friday, then. Round three. All right. So long. Yes. Morris Bird III chose Friday, October 20th, to visit his buddy Chalupka. The day his teacher, Mrs. Dallas, was taking the class on a field trip to the museum. He figured there was a chance he wouldn't be missed. And besides, he'd already seen the Museum of Art three times. So on this Tuesday afternoon, October 17th, he wandered nonchalantly into Albrecht's drugstore and crooked a city map off the rack next to the postcards. Alone in his room that night, he traced out a route on the map with a black crayon, drawing a line along the back streets he wanted to follow. He figured the distance from his house on Edmonds and East 79th to 670 East 63rd was about four miles. He chose the back streets as there was less chance of running into someone he knew. He'd had enough lately with taking chances. Getting to bed early gave him some more time to think over the route. And other things, like making allowances for stupidities. I didn't mean it. You didn't tell? I couldn't. I said I did. I know. I'm innocent. It wasn't my fault. It was dumb old Alex Coffey. It was old Alex Coffey's fault. If only our maid June had stuck to peanut butter sandwiches in my lunch instead of that old thing. Phew, did it smell awful. Anyone who thought I was going to eat that sandwich had another thing coming. When I spotted old Coffey outside the school door, I ran out to give it to him. I thought for sure he'd want it. Everybody calls him the human garbage can because he eats two lunches a day. But even he didn't want the thing. So I threw it away. 
Well, how did I know it would land where it did? How did I know Logan McMurray would get blamed for it? Four times you called me in here. Four times I said nothing. Confession is good for the soul. I ain't done nothing. Oh, yes, you have. Oh, no, I haven't. You may bully your classmates, young man, but don't you dare get flipped with me. Yes, Mrs. Oaks. Oaks. My name is Oaks. Oaks, Oaks, Great Oaks, hot dog. Isn't there any way to talk to you? You're talking to me now. If you didn't do that dastardly thing, then say so. Ah, oh, that wouldn't do no good. You think I done it. What's the sense of me saying anything? You did it. You did do it. That's for me to know and you to find out. You did it then. Suit yourself. Admit it? I admit nothing. Then, then I take it you did do it. You take it however you want to take it. I'm just Logan McMurray. No matter what I say, you're going to think I did it. So I'm going to say nothing. You're expelled. You throw me out of school? Get out of this office, you miserable, sneaking little coward vandal. Throwing a sandwich against the side of an automobile and deliberately... Don't call me a coward. It's the truth. Get out. Call me whatever you want to call me. Only don't call me a coward. You're a coward. Okay. If you want it that way, I've done it. Who needs this crappy old school anyway? Out. Just get out. Sure, Mrs. Ox. Sure. Well, it wouldn't have been so awful if only Logan McMurray had shouted his innocence. Then I could have spilled the beans and confessed. Morris Bird III knew there wasn't much he could do about it now except make allowances. He'd just have to live with it. And someday he would do something about the salami sandwich betrayal, as he called it. He knew that a thing could eat at you and eat at you only so long. In his nine years, he'd done all sorts of bad and stupid things. And when it came to a dumb old thing like that sandwich incident, he was the champion. But he thought the worst of all his stupidities had to do with this speedometer he once thought he had in his belly. I got the idea when I was five. I knew that automobile speedometers showed you, A, how fast you were going, and B, how many miles you traveled. It was the B part that worked itself into my mind. Shortly after his fifth birthday, he got to believing that there was a large black five deep inside his belly. And on his sixth birthday, he could have sworn he felt a small clicking sound as the five slowly slid up and out of sight and was replaced by a six. And some people say dumb things, like Suzanne Wysocki. You ever think of scary things? What kind of things? Scary things, dumbhead. Like having babies. Well, I'm not going to have any babies. Now, be serious. All right. Good. What I mean is, you know, being alone and having no one to run to, doing things on your own, growing up, getting married, having babies, getting old and dying. Dying? Yeah. Like Mr. Pisani down the street? Yeah. I don't think much about dying. Well, you should. Why? Because it's going to happen to you. Oh, big deal. You know what my brother Frank used to say? No. When I was little, sometimes I'd cry. He'd grin at me and he'd say, Now, now, honey, don't get so worked up. It's all going to be over soon. Just think, you're 24 hours closer to dying than you were at this time yesterday. Well? So big deal. God is supposed to take you. Do you believe that? I don't know. I guess so. 
We're all his lambs. Bah, bah, You're bah. not being serious. Oh, you're a poop. On the morning of Wednesday, October 18th, Morris Bird III rose early. He busied himself with preparations for his great project to Chalupkas on Friday. With the evil penknife his Uncle Alan had given him at Christmas, he extracted 94 cents from his porky pig bank. And later that afternoon, he walked to the candy store at Huff and East 93rd and bought a jar of Peter Pan peanut butter and a toy compass. As he did every night before bed, Morris placed Veronica Lake's picture under his pillow. He'd crooked the picture from Woolworth's one Saturday afternoon. It had a thin cardboard frame and the price tag said 15 cents. He liked the scrawling signature across the front of the picture, which said, Love, Veronica Lake. He sure had a lot of important things to think about. He lay back on his pillow, curled his arms around his head. Only two more days till Friday, he thought. Chalupka? Yes? You're my pal. Thank you. You'll always be my pal. You too. Chalupka? Yes? The kids laugh at you at school. I know that. Well, why don't you do something about it? I can't. Why not? Because I'm me. That's why. Chalupka? Yes? Then how come you think so much? I like it. Is that why you grin all the time? On Thursday, October 19th, Morris Bird III had to figure out a way of getting together more than 94 cents. He rooted around in his closet and came up with a pile of comic books and 20 big little books that he took down to the funny book store at the corner. He picked up 13 cents for the lot, which now gave him a grand sum of $1.07. He figured that should do him well in case of an emergency en route. And then he went over his inventory for the trip. One jar of Peter Pan peanut butter, one toy compass, one evil pen knife, a map of the city, a dollar and seven cents, Veronica Lake's picture for morale purposes, and the alarm clock from my bedroom. He didn't own a watch, so it would be important for him to have it, to know what the time was from time to time. Why are you grinning? I was thinking... Logan McMurray called you a slop on the soccer field yesterday. Yes, I heard him. Don't you feel bad? No. Even when he calls you the worst soccer player in the history of the whole world? Yes. But I know I'm no good. It's not anyone's fault. I don't think it's my fault I'm no good. But it's not your fault either. I just as soon sit on the swing. No kidding. I like to sit and swing and think. Mostly about my trains. I close my eyes and there they are. It's almost as good as being home with them. I make up trains in my head. 
I ask myself, what kind of a train is it going to be tonight? Freight, passenger, or what? I've got it down real good. I make up the whole train. A box car, maybe, and a gondola, two tank cars, and a cattle car with the caboose at the end. With the whole thing pulled by maybe the little 040 switcher, the one that says Pacific Railway on its tender. The tender is the coal car, the car right behind the engine. It's really part of the engine. Not everybody knows that. So anyhow, that's what I do most of the time when I'm sitting on the swing. I love my trains. They make me feel big. When I grow up, you know what I want? I want to be rich. You know why I want to be rich? Because then I can have my own railroad car. I can lie in bed and get pulled around the country. You ever lie in bed in a train? Makes you feel like king of the world. You're warm and nobody wants anything from you. And outside your window, the whole world goes by. Like in a movie. Oh, the telegraph poles are nice. Whoosh, whoosh. A nice sound. And the sound of the tracks and all the houses flipping by in the streets. So quiet. It's all there in front of you. And no one wants to hurt you. Chalupka, we'll run the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad tomorrow. Then transfer to 20th Chalupka Limited. That's a real crack passenger train. We'll eat in the dining car with Suzanne Wasaki and have fit for a king oatmeal. I love you, Suzanne Wasaki. Are you serious? Always with the big word, serious. I don't know. I think so. You're not sure. It's important to find out. I think I'm sure. Oh, oh you're a yellow belly. Morris Bird the Turd. Friday, October 20th, 1944, was, as dates go, rather an important one. The war news, for instance, was very good. MacArthur lands in the Philippines. Over on East 66th and Massey Avenue, Leo Bernstein, a retired furrier, looked at his clock. It was 7 a.m. He got up, looked out the window, and decided he'd rake the leaves. It looked like a promising day with a gentle breeze flowing from the southwest and the weatherman promised a sunny afternoon with temperatures in the mid-forties. Yes, he told his wife Naomi, a good day to clean up the lawn. All right, so have a heart attack already. That was her only comment. He grinned, patted her bottom and went off to the bathroom to shave. A few blocks down on East 62nd and St. Clair Avenue... The gas storage tanks loomed darkly in the early morning shadows. Stanley Chalupka could see them clearly from his bedroom window. He never liked them. Nor did he like the large trucks and trailers that were beginning to roll out of the yards of the East Ohio Company's liquefaction plant. But despite the good news on the war, the war effort grinded on relentlessly. Morris, 
Sandra, breakfast ready. Coming, Coming Grandma. Grandma. Might rain today. Mm, might. Don't slurp your cereal, Morris. Yes, Grandma. <laughs> Sandra has a white mustache. Her whole face went into the milk. Don't play games, Morris. Sure, Grandma. I like rain. Now, Morris, you know gulping your food isn't good for you. I like rain when I'm going to sleep. Big deal. All in pingy-like. Mm, great. Now, you be good to your sister. He picks on me all the time. You hush, too. Oh. Eat your oats, Morris. <laughs> I know you're not a horse, but eat your oats anyway. Come on, Sandra, we gotta go. Help Sandra into her things, Morris. Come on, Slowbrook, let's go. I'm hurrying. And over on East 62nd Street, just as Mr. Bernstein was turning on the hot water tap to shave, Mrs. Barbara Sternad had decided to clean her house. She was up at six o'clock to prepare breakfast for her nephew, Harry, who lived at the house. Mrs. Sternad had not been able to sleep well since her husband went overseas, so getting up early had become a habit. She made breakfast for her nephew and had him off to school bright and early, and she was just sitting down to a cigarette. wonder who that could be so early in the morning. Hello. Barbara, it's me, Francine. Yes? I'm, I'm sorry to trouble you so early in the morning, but I wondered if you... Yes? Do you have an odor coming from your basement? Like a gassy smell? No, I, I hadn't noticed. Uh, just a minute, I'll check. The gas tanks themselves were situated in a neighborhood of self-owned homes. The men in the families worked hard ate hearty, and were patriotic Democrats who kept their wives pregnant and married off their daughters early. Stanley Chalupka's grandmother lived in this neighborhood, and now Stanley did, too. Just around the corner from Stanley Chalupka's place, the legless man was practicing on his trumpet. Casimir Redlick lived in a wheelchair since he lost his legs in a railway accident. He was expecting his lawyer that morning to go over the details of his lawsuit against the railway. In the meantime, he decided to work on the lovely solo in Aubert's Fra Diavolo Overture. He settled himself back in his wheelchair, wet his lips, lifted his trumpet, and was about to begin the solo when his wife interrupted with a loud sniff, complaining of a funny smell coming up from the basement. Four miles away to the south, in fashionable Shaker Heights, in an upstairs bedroom in a fine house, Mrs. Imogene Brooks was trying to make up her mind about getting up. She was a beauty and people were forever telling her that she was the spitting image of Loretta Young. She was an excellent bridge player, a good dancer, did volunteer work for the Red Cross, and she was bored. The only excitement in her life at this very moment was the affair she was having with G. Henderson Lefevre, the passionate optician who lived next door. She switched on the radio and headed for the bathroom. This is KCA, the voice of Cleveland. Time is now 10 seconds past 11.30 a.m. We'll have the news at 12 noon. In the meantime, stay tuned for more Midday Reveries. My father was a radio announcer, and I loved to listen to his voice as it boomed out over the airwaves. I think I had a way of sucking in my breath at the terrific sound of it. School that morning dragged on endlessly. And it was on his third trip to the bathroom as he passed the teacher's lounge that Morris Bird III heard his father giving the time. Back in class, he sat thinking about his parents and his sister. 
and how Grandma came to live with him after June Weed was fired. Morris Bird III's mother came home from work early one day with a headache and found June and that Navy fellow on the sofa together. He never understood why his mother had thrown June and the sailor out of the house, calling after them, You filthy oar, I'll not have you in my house. He'd forgotten about it until Grandma came to live with him. What's an oar, Grandma? A what? Well, Mother called June Weed an oar. What does it mean? Oh, well, uh, an oar... <clears throat> no, no, can't say as I do. Maybe it's like something you row a boat with? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, I looked it up in the dictionary. All I could find was oar like in boats and oar like what they dig. At last, Mrs. Dallas called the students to attention and reminded them to bring car fare for the field trip in the afternoon. Class was dismissed. And at that precise moment, Barbara Sternad sat down to have another cigarette. She had tied a lovely kerchief around her red hair when she started cleaning her house. It was a gift from her husband, and it had London written across it in large, old Englishy scroll. Barbara Sternad was a very pretty young woman who missed her husband very much. She read his letters from England over and over again. And in a downtown hotel room, pacing up and down, was G. Henderson the Fever. He maintained the room for his meetings with Imogene Brooks. He poured himself another drink and wondered whether Imogene would tell her husband, Tom, that they were leaving town together. A lot of hoping was going on inside of him while he loved Imogene Brooks. He picked up the phone to call Marva, his wife, to give her the same news, but he quickly put down the receiver and poured himself another drink instead. There's Hoover Sissel. No, I couldn't ask Hoover because he's colored. Sandler would ball her head off if she had to go with him. There's Teddy Karam. Hey, Karam, wait up. Morris Bird III had to find someone that would take Sandra to school in the afternoon. He wanted someone who wouldn't laugh too much, and he wanted someone who wouldn't ask too many questions. If there was one thing he wouldn't be able to take right now was someone who laughed too much and asked too many questions. Wait for me. Hi, Karam. Hi, Drib. You're not Karam. Your name's Teddy Merrick. He knows, stupid. Karam means Merrick backwards. Teddy Merrick's favorite pastime was saying things backwards, like, uh, Abel was I ere I saw Elba. Which meant nothing, really, except that it came out the same way said backwards. Well, see Art Nass. Ask her yourself. What did he say? How's Sandra? I'm okay. Netorekelsiaula. What? I said, like always, rotten. Utab. What's that? Oh, shut up. He mocked no drib. What's he saying? Just a second, Karam. He said, come on, bird. Now talk frontwards for a minute, will you? Okay, bird. Sandra, you walk ahead a bit. I want to talk to Merrick. Oh. Will you take her to school for me? Now? Yeah. Uh-uh. I'll give you time. All you got to do is take her to school. Why don't you take her to school? I'm not going. What? No. How long you been standing here? I'll tell. Well, be quiet. You're not going to leave me with him. I'll leave you with whoever I want to leave you with. I'll tell. I'll run and holler and tell everybody all about it. Tell what? You don't even know where we're going. I'll scream. I'll run home and I'll scream all the way and Grandma will catch you. It'll be the worst thing ever happened to you. No, you wouldn't do If you that. take me with you, I wouldn't tell and I wouldn't scream either. What? I'm going to scream. One, two, three. Ah! 
Cut that out. Ah! All right. All right, I said. Thank you. You won't make it. Huh? You'll poop out. It's going to be a long walk. You don't even know where we're going. I don't care where we're going. I just want to go. Hey, can I say something? Why not? Well, she's not going to school with me, right? Right. I got an idea. Big deal. I got to get to school, so make up your mind in a hurry. You don't want to carry her if she poops out. So, for half a dollar, I'll rent you my wagon. I haven't got a half a dollar. Take it or leave it. You crook. Right, see ya. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Something on your mind? Okay. Okay what? Okay, I'll give you half a dollar. In two words. Crimson Streak were printed in bright white letters on the side of Teddy Merrick's little red wagon. The left rear wheel had a flat place, and it went tiddlump. Teddy Merrick called his wagon Nosmir Kaertz. That's Crimson Streak backwards. Well, Osgnall. What's that? It means so long. Oh. Do glow ardness. Good old Sandra. Boy, some luck. The route Morris Bird III chose did not represent the shortest distance to Chalupka's place. He had just passed East 86th, walking along Linwood Avenue. The street was quiet and the trees smelled dry and clean. For the first time that day, he was beginning to enjoy himself. Twenty blocks down at East 66th and Linwood stood the research laboratory for the East Ohio Gas Company where the scientists did their experiments. It was they who told the people in the neighborhood that the tanks were very safe, that it was a scientific fact that liquefied natural gas was not combustible. Only, when liquefied natural gas escaped into the atmosphere because of a possible leaky tank or something, warmer temperatures caused it to vaporize. As a vapor, it was spooky. But the scientists said there was nothing to worry about. I want to ride in the wagon. I said she'd poop out soon, didn't I? Okay. Get in. <laughs> Boy, it's going to be harder pulling this dumb old wagon with Sandra in it. Better keep my evil penknife handy in my front pocket in case of emergency. What's the matter? Got to check the map. Linwood and... East 82nd. It's going to be all right. What? After pulling out the map, he checked it against the compass. North was where it was supposed to be. Morris Bird III smiled, took out the picture of Veronica Lake from inside his jacket, looked at it and said, Yeah, everything's going to be all right. Who are you talking to? Nobody. A forward march. Where are we going? I was wondering when you'd ask. So where are we going? None of your beeswax. I'll scream if you don't tell me. Go ahead and scream. Huh? If you don't like it, go home. I don't know the way. I know you don't. You leave me here? Uh-huh. You're mean. Uh-huh. I'm going to scream. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Because if you do, I'll run. I'll leave you sitting right there in the wagon and I'll run away. So yell. Go ahead and yell. Do me a favor. One yell and I run away. You got that? Uh-huh. Okay. Now you listen real close. We got a long way to go. I've been planning this for a long, long time. 
If you'd kept screaming back there with Teddy Merrick, I sure wouldn't have been able to go. But now we're far enough away, I don't care what you do. It doesn't matter. You got that? Uh-huh. Okay. If you keep quiet, you can come along. Otherwise, goodbye. It's been good to know you. I'll be quiet, I promise. And no questions? But where are we going? I said no questions. Morris? Yeah? Be nice to me. I'm scared. Yeah, sure. Okay. Thank you. Oh. Over on Massey Street in East 66th, Leo Bernstein had gone back to his raking. The brisk air felt good to him. He grinned at the sky, counted himself lucky to be enjoying such a fine day, and then toppled over dead. A neighbor went to phone her son, the lawyer, to give him the sad news. His office said he was en route to see a client, Mr. Casimir Redlick on East 63rd Street. And down south, four miles away, Imogene Brooks was just emerging from her bath. She put in a call to G. Henderson Lefevre at the hotel to tell him that for sure she would tell her husband about their leaving together tonight as soon as he arrived home from the office. G. Henderson Lefevre was on his way to becoming the most intoxicated romantic optician in town. While over on East 62nd Street, Mrs. Barbara Sternad was on her third cup of coffee. She sniffed something again and frowned. Wiping her brow as though feeling a sudden warmth about her, she continued smoking her cigarette. Boy, you're something else picking on your little sister. It takes a lot of real stuff to pick on your sister who's only six. Who are you going to bully next? Somebody's baby in a crib? Sure didn't think I'd have to be dragging this dumb old wagon along. Nosmir Kayert. Dumb old Karam. Morris. Gee, the sky's clearing up. And Grandma said it was going to rain. How come we got peanut butter and a clock in the wagon? None of your beeswax. Every time I ask you something, you say none of my beeswax. Be quiet. Boy. Morris, can I have some peanut butter? After. After when? After when I say so. Boy. Morris Bird III, Sandra, and the wagon arrived at the intersection of Linwood and East 79. Somewhere they could smell the burning of leaves. They stopped just beyond the little candy store with the Lucky Strike cigarettes, Coca-Cola, and Babe Ruth signs in the window. They were about 50 feet from the store when a near riot broke out. Morris Bird III had never seen a riot before. Morris, where are those people running to? Something's going on in the candy store. They look so funny. <laughs> that skinny lady hobbling across the street. Yeah. She looks like a scarecrow flapping in the wind. <laughs> There's a lady running in her nightie. There's a fight starting. I'm scared. About seven men rushed out of an apartment building. Some in pajama tops and pulling on their pants. Others in pajama bottoms only. One man barefoot. Some women half undressed. And all were running from houses and buildings into the candy store. Or at least they tried to get into the store. Somebody stepped on the barefoot man's toes and he started to holler and scream. Elbows and arms were flying all over the place. 
Men and women were shouting at each other, and then all went down in a heap in front of the store. How do you get the wagon past all those people? Well, Mrs. Dallas says, take it on like a man. Well, here we go, straight down the middle. Excuse me. Uh, can I get through, please? Excuse me. Oh, I'm, so scared. I'm coming through. Slowly, Morris Bird III pulled the wagon through the crowd milling about. Inside, the candy store was black with people. And behind the counter, a small man with a Hitler mustache was waving his arms in the air and shouting, Please get in line, everybody. You'll all get your turn. There's enough for everybody. It was a close one. The police were so busy they didn't notice us. Morris. Yeah? How come so many people were in their PJs in the street? I don't know. Maybe they worked nights in war plants and sleep during the day. So why did they all run outside? You don't know. No. You don't know anything that's going on in the world, do you? So tell me. Right, all right. Just don't bawl. It was to get cigarettes. Huh? Cigarettes. They were buying cigarettes. There's a war on, remember? Oh, is that all? Yeah. And people like cigarettes that much, they fight about it? Yeah. There's not enough cigarettes to go around, so people have to stand in line to get them. Oh. Stanley Chalupka stood looking out of his bedroom window at the lake. He didn't particularly care for the gas tanks that obscured his view of the lake. He paid no attention to them now. But when he first moved in, they kind of scared him. He saw plenty of boats and lots of trains from his window, and they were what interested him. Not those dumb old tanks that just sat there and did nothing. He found a piece of rye bread in his pocket that he'd put there that morning just in case of emergency. He did things like that, often. He went outside, sat down on the front steps of the little frame house at 670 East 63rd Street, and began to wait for his friend, Morris Bird III. Nibbling at the crust first, he began to grin. Morris Bird III had arrived at the corner of Linwood and East 66th, and up ahead at the corner was League Park, where they played big league baseball. And home plate is right about here on 66th. Boy, when a home run is hit, it travels almost three blocks over where the cement bleachers are. It would take your breath away, Sandra, if you were sitting in the bleachers and that ball was coming right at you. Mr. Wasaki takes me to the ball games all the time. No one ever takes me anywhere. Ah, uh, you're too little to go to baseball games. Morris. Huh? That store across the street has a clock in the window. So? You said I should watch out for a clock. Yeah, I know what I said. Now, give me the clock. I'll set it. Here. The time is 3.05. Here. Take the clock and don't drop it. You're very welcome. What? You didn't say thank you. Maybe you want to get out and walk for a change? You're mean. What gave you the first clue? I'm your sister. It's not my fault. You won't even tell me where we're going. Oh, shut up. Wow. I'm getting pooped. This wagon's getting heavier and heavier. Five more minutes. I'll give her five more minutes on the wagon. Morris. Yeah, what now? I have to go. 
boy. Okay, I'll watch for a place to stop. It won't be long, I hope. Then we'll both look, all right? All right. Morrisburg III was now moving along East 66th towards St. Clair. The air was getting warmer and warmer. And the liquefied natural gas was starting to flow freely now. Here and there were wisps of vapor. Well, of course, the research lab had repeatedly assured the neighborhood that the gas was not combustible. But they neglected to advise the people that if a tank began to leak, for instance, the vapor would rise above the surface, and all it took was one spark. We're right on target. It won't be long now, and we'll be on St. Clair Avenue. Can we move faster? I can't hold on. Okay, okay. I'm looking for a place you could go. Brevik's Variety Store, Zarecki's Five and Dime, John's Barbershop, Olga's House of Beauty. In there, Sandra, go. Into the beauty parlor. Over at Casimir Redlick's place, the legless man told the caller on the phone that Irving Bernstein had not arrived there yet, and he went back to his trumpet playing. Imogene Brooks was packing her bag for her flight with the passionate optician next door, while he... G. Henderson Lefevre was calling the hotel bar for another bottle. Mrs. Barbara Sternad was thinking of vacuuming her house and smoking another cigarette. And Irving Bernstein was glancing at his new hat in the rearview mirror as he drove towards the legless man's house. St. Clair Avenue. Morris Bird III dragged Nosmere Kayerts around the corner, took a right turn, and they were now on St. Clair and East 65th. Morris? Yeah? Where are we going? Well, since we're almost there, I'll tell you. We're going to visit Stanley Chalupka. I like Stanley Chalupka. Oh, that's good to know. And I'm glad. Glad about what? About the trip. I like seeing you people. I'm glad you're glad. He opened his mouth to say something to her. He tried to form the words, but no sounds came out. He couldn't get himself to say something nice to her. She might think he'd gone wacky in the head. Morris Bird III was actually beginning to feel good inside. For the last while, Sandra hadn't said anything stupid to him, or cried or sniffled since their last stop. He sure didn't understand her. She'd been full of silence up to her eyeballs. He wasn't even tired anymore, now that they'd almost reached Chalupka's place. Six, seven, oh, East 63rd, here we come. <laughs> Stanley Chalupka swallowed the last of his piece of rye bread and looked up the street towards St. Clair Avenue. Morris Bird III would be coming from that direction. His mother had brought some sandwiches out for him and Morris Bird III to share, and then she went inside. Stanley again turned his gaze towards St. Clair. Something, some sort of vague odor assailed his nostrils, and he frowned for a moment. Just around the corner, Irving Bernstein parked his car, got out, adjusted the briefcase under his arm, set his hat at the right angle, and marched up to the house of the legless man, and... Well, you finally got here. No use coming in, Irving. My friend, I'm afraid you have to turn around and go right home. Your father has dropped dead from a heart attack. Irving Bernstein asked Casimir Redlick to repeat the statement. And then he uttered sort of a wail and turned and staggered out to his car... Sandra and Morris Bird III had just rounded the corner when they saw a strange man running off the porch, wailing like a banshee, his hat flying off his head. 
He jumped into his car and sped off like a bullet, his car careening around the corner on three wheels. What's wrong with that man? How should I know? He acted real crazy. Is it warm? Here, hold my cap. We made it. We made it. We're on East 63rd Street. We just have to find 670. 702-700. It must be just down the street. Then as he reached 690, he heard somebody yelling. He squinted, and there in the distance was someone waving his arms. He suddenly started to sniff a strange smell. He couldn't see too well, and he squinted harder and harder, and there appeared to be a sort of a fog around him. He squinted even harder, and the smell was getting stronger and stronger, and then he saw him. It's Chaluka. Chaluka! I smell something funny. Never mind that. Chaluka! I see it, Chaluka! I made it! Morris Bird III grinned as he ran toward good old Stanley Chaluka, and he heard birds singing. Then up jumped a hot orange ball in front of his eyes. Casimir Redlick had just wheeled himself back to the living room, feeling bad about having to break the news to Bernstein so abruptly, but no matter how you sliced such news, he thought, it was still bound to come out as a shock. He was just placing his trumpet to his lips when he was suddenly and without warning blown right through the front of his house. And the next thing he knew, he was sitting in the middle of the street, his shirt on fire, and he was still holding his trumpet in his hand. He beat at his shirt to put out the flame, looked around him and found his house gone. He had his mouth open and he believed he was screaming. The noise was so deafening he couldn't really hear himself. Up the street, Stanley Chalupka was enveloped in a smear of flame, as was his mother standing in the kitchen. Both disappeared in an orange ball of fire. Morris Bird III saw only the flame as he was not flat on his back. Nosmir Kairds tipped over and Sandra fell out screaming. Her coat caught fire and as she whooped and screamed, streaks of flame shot over their heads. I'm on fire. Oh, my shoulders are burning. Do something. Well, don't do that. I'm trying to get your coat off. My coat is stinking. It's burning me. Now, hold on. Oh, your buttons are hot. I can't get them undone. Oh, it's hot. Okay, another minute or so. Here, there. Wow. It's my hair. It's on fire. Hurry. I'll die. I'll die. Well, try to get it out yourself. My hair's burning. Out, you goofy fire. Get out of my hair. Oh, what a smell. Help me. Help me. I got it out. Okay, okay. Hold still. It's coming off now. My arm. It's all blistery. And I'm pink all over. Where's that peanut butter? The jar of Peter Pan peanut butter lay next to Sandra on the sidewalk. So did the smashed alarm clock, but Morris Bird III's cap was nowhere to be seen. A car blew up and pieces of metal came flying toward them. Morris Bird III rolled over on his stomach and put his hand over his head. Sandra continued yelling and screaming and Morris Bird III, for the first time, let out a near-piercing scream as a flying piece of metal struck him in the rear end. He felt something rip but felt no pain. Rolling over, he found Sandra sitting cross-legged holding her arm. It wasn't pink anymore, it was red. He sat up, scrooched himself to her, reached for the peanut butter. It was hot. If I can get this top off... Yeah, there. I got it. Now, hold still. This will make it feel better. Grandma rubbed butter on me when I burned my hand on the radiator, so what difference does it make if it's peanut butter? Same effect. There. Isn't that good? Come on now. Let me get you up. See? It's not so red now. Tastes good. What are you doing? It's not supposed to be eaten. It's good. Well, stop licking it off. Morris Bird III examined the wagon. 
One of the rubber tires was split, otherwise it was in pretty fair condition. He looked towards Stanley Chalupka's place and found nothing there. All around him, lawns were on fire, telephone poles were burning, houses were crumbling, and down there the gas tanks were making hollow sounds. There was no reason for us to stay there then. Nothing for us to do there. I took Sandra by the hand, put the peanut butter in the crook of my elbow, picked up the handle of the wagon and started to move off. I guessed that Teddy Merritt would want his Nosmer carrots back, no matter what. At that moment, Mrs. Barbara Sternad started to plug in her vacuum cleaner, and with a whoosh, all the walls in the house turned pink. She thought she'd caused a short circuit, but her pink walls just gave way. She screamed. The huge orange flame seared her eyeballs. She shut her eyes. She'd been blinded. Her dress was on fire, and flaming boards fell across her body. She staggered out into her backyard, fell, and rolled on the grass. Her vision was crimson as she beat the flames with the sides of her arms. She crawled forward towards the fence as far away from the house as she could. Imogene Brooks had just finished her packing. The music on the radio was soothing to her frayed nerves. It wasn't every day a woman packed her bag and prepared to leave her husband, home, and children to run off with her lover. She suddenly remembered some blouses she'd forgotten to pack when her telephone rang. Mrs. Brooks? Yes? Uh, this is the Red Cross headquarters. There's an emergency on the east side, and all volunteers have been asked to report to the Wilson Junior High School at St. Clair and 55th. Can you make it? Well... We're going to be put on refugee duty. Refugee duty? Yeah, there's been a terrible explosion. There's hundreds of people have been killed or injured. I really must go now. Now, can you be there in half an hour? Well, yes, I suppose I can. I try. It's really very urgent. I, I was waiting for... Well, well, I don't have anyone to care for the children. Oh? All right, I'll be there. Thank you. Goodbye. Yes. Goodbye. Morris Bird III moved carefully along, watching for flying things. A burning wire fell across the street, and part of it landed on a parked car. The car turned pink in a few seconds. Morris Bird III knocked Sandra down, threw himself on top of her. He figured it was a smart thing to do when the tires began exploding one by one. He picked himself up, and then Sandra, and started to pull the wagon forward. As he trudged along, holding Sandra by the hand, pulling the wagon, he began to feel cold, and he noticed Sandra was shivering, too. He removed his jacket and put it around her shoulders, which were still pretty pink. Then he started out again, on a sight. Little Sandra trailing his jacket on the ground, her hair disheveled, her face all smeared, and Morris Bird III, half his hair seared, a big gaping hole showing in the seat of his pants, and his face streaked with blood and tears. The fence he was passing was blown out in some spots. He had no reason to glance in the direction that he did, but maybe something meant him to. He heard the groans, looked inside the fence, and there lay the pretty burnt lady, Barbara Sternad, with a kerchief around her head and the word London written on it. As soon as he saw her, he stopped. Her clothes were burnt. He quickly opened the jar of peanut butter and began to apply it to her face and arms. After he finished, she started to laugh and finally to weep, but her body began to tremble. She smiled faintly and asked him if it was peanut butter she was smelling. He told her it was. Then he took a deep breath, bent over her, wrapped her in his arms, and slowly began to tug at her middle to pull her towards the wagon. Then he heaved her up and slid her onto the wagon. And slowly, painfully, he moved off with Sandra in tow on one side and pulling the wagon on the other. Morris Bird III peered along the street. There, just a few feet away, lay the legless man in the gutter. You there! Boy! Come over here! I need help! I got no legs! All them lousy people rushing past me, nobody stopping to help. 
The pigs, that's what they are. What? You bring the wagon over here, boy. And give me a ride in it. Well, what about the poor bird lady? What will I do with her? There's enough room for both of us. I don't take up much room anymore. Well, what about the weight? I can't pull all that weight myself. But I'm tired. I want to go home. You see my problem? Don't worry. I'll use my arms to help push like paddling a rowboat. Like a strong arms. Very strong arms. We'll get help in no time. Morris Bird III bent down to help him into the wagon, but he waved Morris away. He pulled himself upright until his head was resting against the side of the wagon. Then the legless man reached into the wagon, pushed the burnt lady sort of to the rear, and then resting his elbows inside, he started to heave himself in. Now then, give me a little shove. I mean, now, give me my trumpet. Here. See? Totally like us. Strong arms. We can go now. You start pulling, and I'll paddle. That's it, boy. Heavy going. Oh, pull out. I'm pulling. I'm helping. Hi, oh, Silver. The legless man was astonished that Morris Bird III kept on moving forward, not crying or whimpering, but sticking to his task of pulling the wagon, looking out for his sister, and every once in a while checking on the poor burnt lady. Boy, how unfair can a situation get? Just a little tiny wagon, and how come all of a sudden Morris Bird III has gone into the ambulance business? The lady's torn dress hung low in front, and most of her kerchief had slipped down over her nose. Never in his life had he seen a lady with so few clothes on. She'd slip over to the legless man's side every once in a while, and as he touched her bare shoulders to move her over, he felt a tiny shuddering movement. He looked at her again and wondered then what had happened to Stanley Chalupka. Hey, boy, you know you're sticking out in the rear end. Nothing covered my old buttski. Absolutely nothing. Cautiously, I guess. I, I think I patted it, but all I felt was flesh. My face was warm. Not only was the seat of my pants gone, but also the seat of my underpants. He tried to decide whether to whistle or wind his watch. He had no watch. Or fall through the pavement or sprout wings and fly to the moon or what. What do I do now? I gave Sandra my jacket. Ah, people are really too busy to notice that your bum is hanging out, boy. Don't worry about it. It's not your bum that's hanging out. Lady or mom? No, she's just a lady. She burned awful bad. You maybe saved her life. You think of that? Suddenly, a policeman who had been directing traffic pointed at Morris and hollered something. The handle of Nozmir Kertz was cutting into his palms, and his legs were shaky, and his bald spot stung, and whatever the policeman wanted could wait until Morris Bird III and Sandra and the burnt lady and the legless man arrived at the corner. Morris gasped, and his tongue hung out, and what he wanted to tell the policeman was, Don't shoot the piano player! He's doing the best he can. I told the policeman, you're just about the finest boy i ever known. I told him, you're a great boy. Great. That's the word I used. I told him, I said, officer, this boy is the greatest thing since sliced bread. This boy is going to grow up into a real man. I told the policeman, I said, the things this boy done, only a great boy could have done them. The boy listened closely to all of this. The greatest thing since sliced bread? What was that supposed to mean? Did it have anything to do with Logan McMurray and the salami sandwich and the stupid old speedometer in his belly? Did it bring back Stanley Chalupka? What had Morris Bird III done that nobody else would have done? He couldn't think of a thing. I remember just then a fire truck came careening towards us. It made a wide turn off St. Clair on East 63rd. We all jumped back. I ran to Morris and he put his arms around me. The fire truck hit Nosemirk Kayert squarely broadside, clung, and Nosemirk Kayert took off. Was it a bird? Was it a plane? No, it was Nosemirk Kayert. Morris Bird took a few steps toward the ruined wagon. Both sides were stove in. 
And then he sat down right there in the middle of the street. He dragged Sandra with him. It had all fallen in on him. Whoop. Just like that. Morris Bird III wept. So did Sandra. You could tell she felt the same way. There was a third explosion at 5.10, a fourth at 6.45, a fifth at 7, and a sixth and last at 7.45. But none was as severe as the first had been. The sky was pink and orange all night. They kept finding bodies for three days. The final total was 135. A reporter tried to count the number of private homes that had been destroyed. He came up with 89. Actually, he counted holes in the ground. He assumed these holes in the ground represented homes. When Morris Bird III and Sandra arrived back home, Morris sat on the porch steps and took inventory. He was out a dollar. He was out one jar of Peter Pan peanut butter. He was out one cap. He still had the evil penknife, seven cents, the picture of Veronica Lake, the compass, the city map. Oh, and he was out one alarm clock. And, of course, Teddy Karam was out one Nosemir K. Hertz. He wondered what had happened to Stanley Chalupka. He supposed he knew. He supposed the best thing was to look it straight in the eye. Morris? Yeah? We're going to get it bad? Boy, I don't care. It was worth it. The boy was having trouble with his breath. Greatest thing since sliced bread or no greatest thing since sliced bread? His chest was thick and his hands were damp. Sandra squeezed her little hands into his. Morris? Onward. Ever onward. The Greatest Thing Since Sliced Bread. Adapted by Gertha Golland from the novel by Don Robertson. In the cast, you heard Art Hives as the narrator, Neil Daynard as Morris Bird III, and Marty Maritan as Sandra. With Frank Maritan, Pat Rose, Thomas Hoff, Sam Payne, Joseph Golland, Ray Brown, Audrey Knifton, Shirley Milner, Lillian Carlson, Anna Hagen, Doris Chilcott, and yours truly, Delford Oliver. That'll do it for this week. I hope that you have had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again... We'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking. <laughs>